Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But... We're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative audio podcast adaptation of my third book, It Came From The Deep, um, with myself, Maria Lewis, Blake Howard. And this week to discuss chapter seven with us, we have a very special guest, one of my oldest friends, one of the smartest broads I know, Hayley Sultani. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mate. Thanks, so, for, thanks for being here, Hayley. Smartest broad we know. That's good. That's yeah. a good phrase. Genuinely one of the <laughs> smartest. <laughs> now, we're going to get you to do some calculus on the spot just to prove my loose oh my statement. Could you imagine? I'd never do that. No, uh, the oh, reason I wanted to have Haley on this episode specifically was um, chapter seven really dives into the start of Kaya with the help of Cabby and, you know, a few other tertiary characters. It's the start of her trying to research and discover more information, not just about what she suspects, but what may actually be there or what she thinks may be there. The reason I wanted to have Haley on this episode of It Came From The Deep is because this is the start of Kaya with the help of some supporting characters like Cabby. It's the start of her researching and her trying to source information. And she comes from a background where she doesn't know how to do that. Now, Haley and I worked together as reporters at the Gold Coast Bulletin. Haley was a police reporter and she's like, I said one of like the smartest broads I know, but she also has this thing. It's like a X quality. I don't know quite how to explain it. If you've ever encountered reporters or had the misfortune to, you kind of know what it is, but she has an incredible bullshit radar combined with <laughs> a, a really good ability to just dig shit up. And that includes not just like obviously getting that information from primary sources, but being able to locate and utilize relevant information from secondary sources as well. So Haley, I'm so chuffed to have you here as a police reporter who's seen a bunch of shit, but also somebody who really knows the intricacies of the Gold Coast and Gold Coast culture um, really yeah, well. Because <laughs> it's, you know, like in a book. Also Gold Coast. Exactly. So the Gold Coast is obviously a very specific place. And obviously, Blake, your nana-in-law is from there. I grew up there. Haley, you still live there. Um, and trying to sort of explain the intricacies of it in a book is very, not challenging, but it's like you don't want to be like talk down to people, but you also don't want to info dump at the same time. Haley, when you were reading this chapter <laughs> specifically, if you weren't a police reporter and if you weren't like super ballsy and clever how would you have gone about trying to find this information like did this feel authentic to you in terms of like Kaya having to go to the library and sort of you know dig up shit dig up secondary sources yeah definitely um I know that's something that reporters here do we have our actual library system does have um like a really good historic 
sort of section. Um, yeah, microfiche, and, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it really is just, yeah, that, that sort of starting from those really ba- what seem like basic places. Uh, these days, everyone just jumps on Google. But, you know, it is libraries are these amazing resources that are there people people that you have to talk to that's that is something I think a lot of people um you know we we do everything via technology now so sometimes it is just those really simple conversations that are the hardest to have for some reason just asking questions um but yeah and and books and written written resources are something that I think not many people necessarily go to as their first port of call anymore it's interesting that thing you said about speaking to people one i worked in a newsroom um once that shall remain unnameless but it had a lot of junior staff members like i was one of the more senior staff members and i was in my mid-20s so that's how you know how cooked it was but uh because there was like no seniority and because there were wasn't people to mentor and help explain to us why it was important to get information directly from the source. And then when they gave you that information, fact check it. I remember there was a reporter who said to me, uh, like a few weeks after she started, she said, she goes, she's like, I'm so impressed with you. Just like also impressed with you. And I, at the time had been feeling really shit about myself and my sort of like professional conduct. Cause I hadn't left the office. They hated it when you physically left the office. And so I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, you always just pick up the phone and ask. And I was like, yeah, like it would because we grew up in a newsroom environment where you literally had to. And this, you know, Google existed, but Twitter was Twitter came in when we had first started. Like social media was still becoming a thing. Um, there was no other way to get information. You really had to pick up the phone and call people, but also do police rounds. You know, you had those favorite yeah. people that you liked speaking to at the water police, and then you'd always be that one person. You're like, oh shit, I got. Boris, he's always the worst. <laughs> he's going to tell me nothing. But I mean, how important was that? A tough skill for you to learn initially? That thing that we're taught as cadets and as young reporters that you just have to suck it up and go directly to the source sometimes. Yeah, and I think like especially you know, like you said, we started quite young. You know, I started as, as a cadet, sort of out of uni, so I a little bit older than you were. You know, starting on it the way your cadetship worked. Um, but I was still early 20s, not probably not super confident. And I did start on the copy desk. So, you know, like a heavily admin based role, we didn't really have to talk to that many people. And then thrown into a cadetship where, I mean, I was made police reporter three months into my cadetship. So it was, you know, the whole baptism of fire type thing. Um, and I'm suddenly, you know, calling literally the city's top cop every single day and that's all the stuff you learn on the job like you learn a lot of things at uni or you're taught certain things at uni you're told how to do certain things at uni but nothing prepared me for the real world of journalism until I was in it Mm, yeah a hundred percent and that that is it also becomes because you have to do it so often and it's just like repetition Mm. repetition and the hours are long and the environment's crazy in who's afraid and who's afraid i'll just leave it at that one because there's other mechanisms that come into play later but in who's afraid i had a character called mari who was a police reporter 
and um, her and her partner were based on you and your partner. Um, may they rest in peace, those characters. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> I know, thanks a lot. Yeah, anyway. sorry. I think we're actually at a book launch on the Gold Coast that Kath Weber, my former editor, was hosting. And she's like, and so I understand these characters are based on two people in the audience tonight. And I was like, Haley and, uh, and Karen, sorry that I like fully decapitated. Well, I think one's yeah. decapitated, the other gets their throat slit. Anyway. It's not important. But wait, 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 really wait, wait. How do you break that to your friend that you're like, hey, look, publicly I this on in front two of, of my you. entire my, family? <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys so much, but also I had you decapitated. That is yeah. a fucking most on-brand Maria Lewis friend casting in a book like, that I've ever 100%. heard. Let me tell you, it was not only in front of Haley's entire family, but Haley's dad had just had his nails painted by my friend Cara. And then also one of the Gold Coast slash the state of Queensland's most prominent politicians was also there. Oh I forgot. Outstanding. Out-fucking-standing. Oh, fuck. But, I mean, when I had Mari in Who's Afraid slash Haley, uh, that character, she was there because it was a super handy device to be able to get across information and to believably have somebody there who could um, move the story forward in a way that was like fact-based and somebody who could like weasel through things. And, and it came from the deep. It was really tricky writing this chapter specifically, but also writing a character who doesn't have those instincts because they're instinctual to me and they're instinctual to you now. Yes. But she, you know, she says in the book, she like barely made it through high school. And so trying to think, okay, believably, like what would this person do? They would, you know, go to a library because that's what you see on TV about how you research yes. stuff. And then you would look things up online and you would kind of comprise your sort of profile of information based on, you know, a bit of a, like a mishmash collage of like what you can find. Mm. But it's Definitely. really kind of the first place. It's kind of a, it's, it's a very green thing. But what I love, it's also the genius thing in some because it's where you actually start to distinguish what is a first and secondary source and what is actually valid. Because if you just go down a Google rabbit hole, you will die in it as far as I'm concerned. So it's like cool to be like, I'm going to read a book and this librarian may be able to help me or this microfiche is like from a newspaper where this actually happened. You know, it's like, it's actually kind of, the first smart way to do it as opposed to the reflex of like contemporary times of Google. I remember at the paper, the, the office we used to work in is, is a, a pile of rubble now. It doesn't even exist. It's really strange when you drive past actually, but I remember being in this, in this old office and it was, you know, just like a glorified huge shed basically. And you would go down to this back room and I didn't even, like this is how naive I was before I became a journalist. So I didn't even know that they had every paper like ever there. And you could just go down into these <laughs> records. Oh my God. It was amazing. And just pull stuff out. And there was like a full on, I mean, oh, I'm ashamed to not know exactly what the title would be, but, but a, a record keeper who, whose job was to keep all of that. And you could go to them and say, look, I'm looking for this here's someone's name, here's, here's a rough date that I think something happened and they could pull out so much stuff. And that like really made me realise, I think, how important, you know, the media is and, and news is. It, it is history. Like, you know, with, without trying to pump up all journos, it's, you know, it is like they're historians. They are recording and documenting history and that's pretty cool. Like, 
And to have that kind of resources at your fingertips and to just be able to, I mean, we also obviously had electronic versions and we could go in and search for um, keywords and things and find just all this past work. And it was unbelievable what was there. Yeah, it was crazy. Blake, it is exactly like that scene, but on a smaller level in Spotlight when um, they go to the librarian section and they have several you know, librarians because it's the Boston Globe, not the Gold Coast Bulletin, but they ask for clips on like several different categories and that person physically delivers them. It was like that, but the records that we like, because we had like an online database, but it only went so far. So it was like getting to that point where they were starting to digitize. And so you knew that if it was anything before XYZ year, you had to go and like try and find the physical copy or ask for the physical copy. And then also sometimes the digital records, they would only have the text and what would be mm-hmm. quite important would be the pictures um, and the captions that would go with those pictures. So then in that case, you're like, okay, I've got the text, but like I sort of need to see how this was placed on the page and like what picture had relevance. And maybe this person that I'm looking for was in the background of XYZ picture, which sounds very like, Hunt for the Zodiac Killer. (laughs) But it's true. It's 100% true. And the Gold Coast is a new place too. Like to keep in mind, there was all that history and all those records and the city had only been around really since like, I don't know, fucking 1920s at best. Yeah, it's not very old. And that's the thing. Like it's such a transient place. People come and go. Um, you get a lot of people who like it's it's not really common to meet many people who I mean I wasn't born on the Gold Coast but I've been here since I was like three or four years old so I am a Gold Coaster and that's you know there's there's not actually that many like I mean there are but there's but there's not it's it's interesting most people you meet are not like sort of born and raised here so that that's a part of the I guess in, like just interesting makeup of the Gold Coast is that it is sort of ever evolving. Um, the actual population. Hey, besides your children, are you the youngest person alive on the Gold Coast? Because that's my experience of the Gold Coast. Is just so many really that are super super old all live on the Gold Coast. It's like that, and then like schoolies. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting because normally you meet people and they're like, oh, fake tits, bl- like bleach blonde hair tattoo sleeves like that's all they think the gold coast is and it's like you know i, Listen, all, I do jump law does have a mad sleeve but um, i think you're gonna say your nana babies. has mad tits <laughs> <laughs> nana hazel's got a great rack racks on racks on rack. <sighs> no but that is the thing as well about the gold there used to be this saying in the newsroom that and I'm from memory, it was one of the other police reporters who'd been in that role for a really long time, um, Robin Wooth. And she used to have to say this thing where there was always a Gold Coast connection. So it wouldn't matter what kind of story it was, how outlandish across the other side of the world, say a nuclear power plant explodes <laughs> or something, you know, in <laughs> Antarctica or whatever, something ridiculous. Why would there be one there? That's not the point, listener, but just as an example, <laughs> an outlandish story and there would always be a Gold Coast connection somehow. And mm. at the time I was like, oh, you know, I sort of thought that was like GCB fan service. But the longer I worked there, the more I realized it was right because it is the city that has tendrils in a lot of different areas, even in the same way of like 
you just growing up there for a period of time is beneficial because of who you know. You know, X, Y, Z thing happens to this person. You know somebody who knows that person or like, you know, the difference between between bikies and a bike gang. Like there is a distinction. You know, the difference between... Um, bikers and bikies. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that there was a time where that was really a big storyline here, but it really. I mean, there's been a couple of things lately, um, but yeah, it's kind of off the radar at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's the other Gold Coast thing that I wanted to touch on from like a newspaper perspective uh, is just the weirdness of stories that you would end up covering there under your purview, like just the absolute batshit insane stuff. Now, as a police reporter, obviously that tends to lean more crime based stuff, Mm. but like, could you explain for people who maybe aren't familiar with the Gold Coast, just the kind of weird stories that you can end up covering in your job? Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) I wouldn't even know where to start. Like the one thing with the Gold Coast, um, that I will just say is that, you know, people, I don't know if people still say this, but people used to be like, oh my God, there's so much crime on the Gold Coast, you know? And I was always like, really? Like, that's not that bad, you know? And like all our crime was like really repetitive. Um, like, I, I don't want to downplay it, but you know, like armed robberies and things, but no one's hurt. And it's like your corner store or, and it's like every night for like seven <laughs> nights in a row, like ram raids, like just, the things, ram you know? raids oh my god you'd be oh, on ram raids. I love the ram raid. you'd love a love a ram raid on a wednesday night if you were covering the late shift and you're like yes. is this is it been a slow enough news day that i cover this as a story or will it end up in the police blotter that was always the like i know exactly and like i remember doing ones like there were quite a few there was like a spate of um atms being ripped out of walls like where they would like tie them somehow, oh, like very, chain them to a car. That's very yeah, dull, I know. Dull, they can never get close behaviour. ATMs coming out. Yeah, it, it probably is quite similar to that sort of region. Oh, brilliant! But like my my first front page was a um, road rage attack, um, where it came in over the scanner that someone like it started off really tame, like you know, a bit of a road rage thing, and we were like, oh yeah, okay. And then it was like, yeah, he's been like like smashed with a hammer and we're like oh okay that's like sounds interesting and this is like a Sunday afternoon and I was with the like like I was you know this was before I was actually police reporter I was still like a pretty green cadet and Sundays in a in a daily paper newsroom I is a while since I've worked in one but you know it was a quiet day you didn't you did not have anywhere near a full team of staff so but luckily we had this um I, I got sent out with a really awesome photographer and she really guided me and we ended up following uh the cops when everyone else followed the ambos as everyone when I say everyone else I mean all the other media so all the other media got the victim being put into the ambo at like at the scene but we followed the cops and we got the arrest they'd sent a dog into parkland pulled out the guy you know shirtless and handcuffing him on the ground and everything so that was wicked and that was like yeah when I'm talking about weird like weird Gold Coast stories and weird scenarios and stuff as well I was thinking and it wasn't necessarily inspiration for the book but it was for sure something that I thought about was this story that a colleague of ours Jeff um ended up having a chase and you would just get weird reports all the time about like 
the Mount Tambourine Yowie was a big one that got reported on a lot or like some panther in some suburb. It was always a thing. But there was this story <laughs> yeah. where somebody, there kept being calls and reports into the office about a deer. And um, people were like, why? What do you mean? It, like deers, okay, not that uncommon, but like a deer swimming in the seaway. And for sure, we were like, that's got to be bullshit. No way is there a deer swimming in the Southport Seaway. Like, that just seems like the weirdest story ever. Someone's obviously calling a prank. But it happened enough times that it eventually got to that point where the chief of staff had a quiet enough news day that they actually assigned somebody to it. And he ended up going out on a boat with, I think it was Mikey, Mikey B, who was one of this photographer who lived on a Legend. boat. Yeah, absolute mad dog. He was so cool. Like he ended up setting up his whole sort of, like he was so old school and so trusted like that he could basically do his own thing. And he got, um, he had his whole van like fully set up. Oh my up. God, that's it right. I forgot. On wheels. <laughs> yeah. And this, this is the thing is that this was like, cause we were like right on the cusp, right? Of mm. like the last print journals. So yes. these were the days, this was before working from home. Like it's not that long ago, but it is like, we didn't, you didn't work from the road really. Like you always came back to the office to file your stories. The photographers had to come back to file their pics. Like you went yeah. physically back to the office to do all that sort of stuff. So, but he was like, had the full setup in his van, just sort of cruise around where, went where he had to go. Like, got the shot, like, did not beat around the bush, but always got the shot. And, you know, they say about working with, like, animals and kids, and he's probably, like, directing a bunch of kids. Like, he's re really no bullshit, mm. but he could still get him to do what, what he wanted without, like, having to sort of, you know, like, coax them into it. He just, I don't know, he was just total, total legend guy. But the deer story was, like, indicative of a, a thing that was... I guess you could say like loose inspiration for this book, but for a lot of elements in the story where, you know, it just seems so ridiculous getting calls about a deer <laughs> swimming in the seaway, them getting mm. on a boat and then finding out that it's actually true. And that there's really a family of deer that were living on an Island in the seaway. <laughs> um, and it ended up being on the front page story and people were just like, yeah. what? But there was just, so many little things like that where it's just like you never knew what to expect on the Gold Coast, especially when waterways and anything involved with water was concerned. You just truly didn't know what was in there or like mm. what to expect. And when I was writing the book and like even this chapter when she starts digging into things like reports from, you know, like the Christopher Columbus reports, which is true, by the way, but it was like described by one of his sailors to him that was like a true account of what he reported combined and with seeing like at sea yes that he, wow that they were like there were all these you know mer ladies like hey sailor let me get that dick um what? that's that's what they reported but then obviously that's so long ago and you know sea monsters were believed to be true then and so it's like a very different idea and it's also you know there's that and line. These been out to sea for a so long. long. There's literally, there's literally the, the expression. Out yes, sea. exactly. <laughs> and there's, I think, I can't remember if it's Cabby or Kai who says it, but that line about like they think now that the original Murmur people sightings from Christopher Columbus and all those original uh, colonizers were like just dudes who were so horny that a dugong started to look real fucking good. I think it's Cabby. <laughs> <laughs> like it just is like yeah I believe that but teaming up stuff like that 
that's historical and seemingly outlandish with stuff like uh, the accounts from Israel in 2009 about the mermaid sighting, but also 2012 in Zimbabwe, like the water minister, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, genuinely put out a press release about these mer creatures or in traditional culture in Zimbabwe, it's called Mamawata, but these mer creatures that were like stopping their construction project, like the construction of this specific thing. And like 2012 is not that long ago. You know, these stories are really prevalent in all different Mm. types of cultures and all different kinds of ways. And I just, I'm not saying I believe in more people, but I'm not discounting anything because I've seen some wild shit and you just never know, you know? No, no. And hundred percent. Like I think humans have always been fascinated with that sort of stuff. Um, You know, I really like reading, you know, Greek mythology. And I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, who knows? Like, and I think when you grow up by the ocean, like I was thinking this when I was listening to the episode with Courtney, you know, I was never a nipper. I never did surf lifesaving, but I spent my life at the beach and in the beach and still, still do. And there's, I think there's just like a deep respect you have for the ocean. And if you don't, you're an idiot because it will kill you. Like you have to respect the ocean. And when you are floating in water, especially like not to get all deep about it, but you know, when you're underwater and you are just like literally in the water the who knows what's under there and you do feel like you know I've swum in the ocean my whole life and I still will have that moment of panic when there's absolutely no reason I could like it, it just can come well, upon you and you just don't know Holly, like, Holly, you're saying you're saying something so elemental though which is um it's like Native Americans have got like a hundred words for what we call a yowie or or um, you know, like Bigfoot, you know, that's why people still obsess over Bigfoot. And so yeah. it's no surprise that people who grow up in and around the ocean and mer sightings, it, for me, it doesn't feel like that that's completely outside the realm of possibility that people would not only, whether it's literally happening or not, but it's just like that thing that can toy with your imagination because you're obsessed with it. You're there. Exactly. It's a constant, you know, especially yes. in Australians so when we had like an actual prime minister who disappeared at sea. You know, the leader of our country just fucking noped it, yeeted himself into the ocean and was never seen again. And there's so much of the sea that's just not explored and not understood. Yeah, 100%. No, it's epic. Like, who knows? I could see the Gold Coast, like, the whole time I was reading it. I knew where I was and... You know, I had the picture in my head and like when you did the backstage, well, not backstage is not the right word, but um, behind the scenes at SeaWorld, like I so (laughs) clearly remember going in there, you know, doing all that stuff, like after an oil spill and, uh, you know. Yes. um, And uh, like whenever the whale would get stuck in the nets, which during migration season would be like, you know, every few weeks, it genuinely would be. Sometimes it was like I did three whales stuck in net stories in one week and it was like you got to really know um those people really well like Trevor Long who was the head of SeaWorld at the time and the brother of um one of the senior staff members at the paper when we worked there he's somebody that I had so many conversations with over the years about even like the biology of like so just like hypothetically like while we're out here just waiting to cut a whale free from a net like if there was a merman like how would that work you know and it was his his 
idea he'd said to me about like it would need to have a, a merm person would need to have a vertebrae like a dolphin um to be able to support the friction of movement like that was his yeah. concept and i was like oh that's really interesting okay cool file yeah. that away for later i had always planned it to be a merman and i can't i think i just said mer person at the time i didn't gender it but it was that thing of like when you're stuck at a job sometimes and you have so much time to kill mm. so much time it's like especially some of the best relationships i ever built with sources and contacts were when people would go missing in at Mount Tambourine or something and you'd be stuck up there for three, four days with emergency waiting. services. Yeah, waiting. And then you end up building up really solid relationships with those contacts. And it's the same with the SeaWorld people and all of the marine experts on the Gold Coast because you covered that kind of content a lot. So you yeah. would build these relationships so that when you're weaving it into a story, it feels lived in because it was in a way, yeah. like it wasn't something that I had to research. I researched a lot, but like that bit, the walking through the halls of SeaWorld was like mm. a memory rather than mm -hmm. something that I was trying to create, if that makes sense. And it's not an angle that most people see. So it's kind of cool to, like I could, I could actually picture that because I've also walked through the back way, you know, and that's, it's pretty cool like to, to have been able to do that. And there are a lot of experiences like that that like I, I drive around the Gold Coast all the time. Every corner has a memory anyway, but then even more so like when you've then worked on the paper and there's a, like there's just so much in this city that it's just, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I was um, talking to Amanda um, about like, you know, the Gold Coast music scene and trying to set up the vibe and talk about recreating that for, you know, chapter, chapter three and stuff that's earlier on in the book. And she mm. was saying about how um, on Facebook, she's like, she saw a friend of hers who still lives on the Gold Coast post about getting egged in Palm Beach. She was walking <laughs> home and I was just like, I had a doll off every time I got red eggs on the Gold Coast. <laughs> she's like, you know, she lives in Denmark now and is like, how does, how does that still happen? You know? I'm like, yeah, that's classic. GC be GCing, I guess. I don't know. The other thing I was going to say, um, you know, when how you were talking about um, sources and researching and all of that, um, I really liked, you know, like the whole dating that guy to, to <laughs> pump him for info. Like that's just such a classic, you know. <laughs> You've got to have that in there. And well, also. Why not? But, you know, it also, it works. A hundred percent. And also like just how hard that is, again, like the things that we're talking about you know, Kai is not us. She doesn't have, she didn't have to endure getting shit thrown at her in a newsroom for years to have the fear of God beaten into them about how to research or how to source information. So that idea of like, how would somebody coming to this from the outside look up things about, you know, mer people or mer culture or mer people sightings or even old crimes. Use every tool that is in your kit. You're both attractive totally. ladies. Kai, Kai is based on Courtney, who is as hot as it gets. And so it's like, you know, of course, an attractive woman's going to use that tool in her yeah. kit. Yeah, but and like, not? that's but not also, instinctive for her. Like, that's why yeah. I was like, it's a really hard. You had to do it. Hell, yeah, yeah. To work it. Yeah, but I think that's like it's such a huge. For I think, I think a lot of really su the successful journos that I recall, you know, um, it wasn't that they necessarily sat there and 
asked the really, really tough questions and hounded someone and attacked someone like you see, you know, on the TV with reporters chasing people down the street. It's the people who can sit and have a conversation and make someone feel comfortable mm. um, and get to those questions that they need to ask by first building you know, a bit of a rapport and a little bit of trust. And it's not always something that necessarily has to take, you know, a lot of time because it's just all in your, um, your manner. And and there are some journos we worked with that I still think like, how were you such an amazing journal? Because you're such a nice person. I know. Yeah. I ran it all the time. But they do. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's like a very sort of special magnetism in a way but it's also um that constant weighing of stuff of like somebody might come to you with information on a certain story and they're like but I'll need you to hold something else or like you get a story first and you go to someone for a quote and they're like I'll give you a quote if you can hold it for a day or if you can hold it for whatever and like weighing up the the cost of that relationship the benefits of that relationship between doing your job and doing your duty and also like Mm. if you can wait and be patient oftentimes there's a better story on the other side rather than getting a quick headline for one day and then the piece is gone and burning your contacts like i feel like i feel like this aftershave it came from the deep so aptly has pivoted into all the president's minutes (laughs) my other great podcast which you can find on any podcast app that you enjoy so i've been getting a double kick out of this talking shop of like building trust and establishing that. But like, like you said, Kaya is emotionally vulnerable at this point in the book. She's pretty raw. So she's not going to like trust her instincts and her attractiveness because of everything that's happened. But then the mm-hmm. second bit is you guys are talking about all the trade craft of actually being a great journalist. And that is something that is also completely not in her wheelhouse, but it's something that, you know, she's, she's having to like learn like, you know, like baby steps, but without, you know, a, a crazy auntie who looks at videos of small Asian children who can walk before they're one years old and showing you that on YouTube to teach you how to walk. I feel personally attacked by that. Uh, full clarity for people who are like, what the fuck was that monologue? I taught Blake's son how to walk by showing him videos of, he was quite young. He was like nine months, which is early to walk. So his body ratio was all like fucked up. Um, cause his head was big and his like little belly was big, but his legs yeah. and shit were just like, he's got, he's, he's got a gut, like a 50 year old, like beer drinking tradie. And he oh had a head as, as big as mine. No <laughs> legs to speak of. Stumpy no as hell at the time. I used to call him the bread, All loaf, thighs. bread loaf baby. Cause he had like a belly, like a cob loaf and little legs like croissants, but he was like ready to walk, but just like, didn't have the visual reference. So I sat him down on my lap for like an hour one night and showed him videos of, and they were like all Asian babies that were around eight or nine months old, like that were walking like really well at that age. And then later that night, off he went. I'm not saying I'm wow. responsible for him walking on this planet, but I'm not, not saying that. You know? Um, Haley, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. And walk down memory lane in a weird way. (laughs) It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermates.